Well, thank you, Pastor Gary. Thank you, Pastor uh, Werner, as well. And uh, thank you, Olm, um, Colm, and the Elder. And uh, lovely to meet you all. And thank you so much for your uh, warm welcome here in uh, this church at Kingsway. I just want to show you an example where actually the science really does support this uh, strong statement of course in creation that God made everything in the creation week and of course it says very specifically that the birds and flying creatures were made on which day? Which day? Very specific. Five, that's right. So God is very specific and says that on day five he made the flying creatures. That the fish also were made on this day and that they weren't made with uh, land creatures already in view, which is interesting. Land creatures hadn't yet been made. But God made these creatures, not just eagles, which I'm showing you here, but he made all the birds, some of which, of course, you have some fantastic birds out here. Are these just evolved flying machines? Is it evolutionary magic or is it brilliant engineering? Well, that's what I want to ask as we deal with flights. Of course, flight has been the dream of the centuries. This chap obviously didn't make it because uh, he hadn't understood power-to-weight ratios. <coughs> Probably didn't live to tell the tale. These guys were sort of flying in a way, but they were, in, in the sense that we're talking about, cheating because they weren't using heavier-than-air craft. They, they're using a lighter-than-air craft. The Montpellier brothers and others be, uh, worked out how to make balloons in their day. Um, Making an aircraft is not just a matter of throwing everything together and expecting it all to piece itself together. You actually have to have a mind behind it in order to make an aircraft. And of course the people who've really gone down in history as the ones who really did this the first time, with all respect to Chris from New Zealand, from which there is a claim, which is Richard Pierce, whom I'm sure he is aware of, uh, also uh, flew, and he flew in 1902. Um, the, but I think most would accept, except for some really hard-nosed New Zealanders, that uh, Richard Pierce was really not controlling. So some people uh, would push that Richard Pierce was the first one to fly, but he wasn't really controlling the craft. Um, he flew, but he wasn't controlling the aircraft in the way that the Wright brothers did. The real brains, probably more than anyone behind uh, of the two, is the one on the right, which is Wilbur Wright, and Orville Wright, to, he... They, they were just a brilliant pair because Orville knew what he was doing. Uh, Wilbur was probably the, the mastermind behind getting the ideas. And they would go around with their bowler hats and uh, that was just the way they did things. And they'd even wear, 
a lot of this paraphernalia as they went to work as well. And the famous first flight was in 1903 on a very cold winter's day, which they'd been for many uh, months beforehand. Um, there in Kitty Hawk in North Carolina on that little spit of land which sort of follows the coastline and you, in those days you had to take a boat trip to get to it. Um, and there you can see actually it's not Wilbur, it's Orville riding the first man-made uh, heavier than air controlled flight which was on December the 17th, 1903. That was really momentous because they'd understood that by copying what birds were doing and they actually took aerofoil shapes uh, by looking at the way the birds changed their wings and controlled their wings in flight, much as we can see today, but it took... Wilbur, careful observation of the birds, and he realised that the birds were changing the camber, changing the shape of their wings, and he knew that that was the key to making a heavier-than-aircraft, which was powered, and enabled, would enable them then to actually change the shape such that as the craft flew through the air, they would be able to land it again by having a somewhat different shape and controlled at low speed. You can actually see the shape of the aerofoil there. And this took a lot of work. They were not trained aerodynamicists. They trained themselves. They were actually bicycle makers. And they were from Dayton in Ohio. And it's one of the one of the best examples of entrepreneurship <coughs> that history has. Today, they are honoured by the Smithsonian. But the Smithsonian in their day was anything but helpful. They were the ones who actually were themselves trying to get into the air first and actually make sure that they could uh, get control of an aircraft. They hadn't a clue what to do. They hadn't copied the births. They actually simply uh, shot an, a poor man in an aircraft of sorts in, uh, from a ship in the Potomac River and it went up and it went straight down again and almost drowned the poor pilot. So there was no way that the Smithsonian had any understanding as to how to make a real controllable aircraft. So the Wright brothers did it, and they did that on December the 17th, 1903. And before long, in a few years' time, people were even flying monoplanes like Blerio and flying the English Channel, no doubt trying to reverse the, um, the antics of the uh, Napoleonic Wars. I don't know. But anyway, the Airbus aircraft and other aircraft today are controlled by having forward slats and backward-facing flaps. These are ways by which the aircraft today is controlled. In the day, as I said, of the Wright brothers, just going back to that picture, 
they controlled their craft by changing the shape using cords which they cords which they pulled on and the cords would actually change the shape. They've also got forward facing tailplane so the aircraft is actually going away from you, it's not coming this way it's going away from you and they do, do have a tailplane, uh, sorry they do have a forward uh, tailplane but they have a backward um, fin which is what aircraft have today so it was a remarkable achievement the Wright brothers flew roughly the distance of a Boeing 747 on its first flight that's how far they flew by the end of the day they had had an accident but they recovered and over the years the, the uh, aviation industry really mushroomed as you know so when we consider flight it's not something simple that's the point that I'm making by talking about the Wright brothers even today people have learnt by copying the uh, in this case the winglets the curved winglets at the end of a wing that this uh, this bald eagle is showing and this is an illustration of the fact that at low speed you can save fuel by actually having another little winglet to break up the trailing vortex which is always there due to lift whenever you get lift there is always a, a need to bring your wing to an end and when you bring your wing to an end a finite wing you actually lose that lift and it becomes what we call a trailing vortex if you can break up that trailing vortex you could reduce the amount of lift that you use we call that reducing the induced drag the induced drag is always the penalty for real lift so this this illustrates that it can be done and of course people are copying nature and when they do copy nature they get it right and this is illustrated by recent, more recent inventions as I'm showing you here so the, the, this principle of copying nature with a view to using it in engineering is actually a principle which people are now beginning to cotton on to and realize that there is much still to be learnt in engineering by seeing that nature has it already and we call this biomimetics I've actually done some work on the bombardier beetle and there's copies of this DVD actually on the bookstall out there which are called insect inspiration I've not been talking about that today but you might be interested in getting hold of that DVD because that's all about copying a, a valve system in a beetle with a view to using it in engineering so I would suggest to you that when people do that they tacitly, not admittedly, not usually openly tacitly they're admitting that nature has good designs well if they've got good designs that implies that there is a designer and there is one who has put such wonderful systems in place already so 
I'm all for biomimetics. Now, coming to the birds, the birds show every evidence, of course, of some amazing features. I saw just yesterday as I was just driving down, uh, near the coast on our way to a, a, a meeting that we were having on creation at Cornerstone, we were went just by the sea there and we saw an Australian kestrel. And it was evidently a kestrel and I was very pleased to see it, although I didn't have my camera ready to take a picture of it. But kestrels and all birds have these alula feathers, which are special feathers to enable the wing just to have some extra energy on the top surface to re-energize the top surface when you lose lift. In other words, to avoid a stall. Thinking though of kestrels themselves, a kestrel is particularly visible when it's starting, it's just flicking its wings like this, shimmering, and what they're doing, of course, is they're flicking their wings against an air brake at the back. And it's a marvellous demonstration of a flying skill which is all to do with balancing the, uh, the, the bird against its tail and still staying aloft and not just staying aloft but actually staying stationary enough that it can look for a vole or a, uh, a mouse which it wants to feed on or prey on. So these are amazing creatures which have this ability to hover. And the hovering nature of some birds is really a, a joy to watch. Probably the one that we all are much more well aware of, though, is the hummingbird. The hummingbird has the ability to hover by a totally different principle. It hovers by actually beating its wing at about 50 to 60 times per second or even 150 if it really wants to. Um, and it will beat its wing in such a way that the end of the wing is following a figure of eight on its side. So it's twisting its wing like this. So instead of bringing its wing in in a normal flapping motion and then bringing it down again, it actually twists its wing at the equivalent of the elbow and that elbow joint is actually turning through something like 180, even 270 degrees and doing it much more than normal birds can. So it's got a special swivel joint to allow that. So the radius and ulna turn right back on themselves like that. This is a remarkable uh, movement that hummingbirds have. Hummingbirds have to feed exceedingly fast because in order to get their food they must actually achieve getting their own body weight in one day. Now if I was to try and feed, or some of you were trying to feed your own body weight in one day, I think there might be a few issues. 
whereas a hummingbird obviously doesn't wait. Okay, the, the hummingbird then has to feed and get its own weight every day. It has to do that by feeding on nectar. Now the nectar is basically sugar and it has to get that nectar because it's burning its energy also exceedingly quickly. So it's got to dart from flower to flower in order to pick up that food, to pick up that energy. But that raises another issue because when it's sleeping at night, it doesn't just want to be at the same body temperature because it's going to waste its energy. So it has a remarkable system for conserving its energy when the sun has gone down and um, it, it's roosting. It actually reduces its own body temperature by 10, 15 degrees, quite a lot. And it's begins to beat its heart much less until it's almost not beating it at all. It is beating it, but it's, it's virtually dead. In fact, if you picked it up, you'd think, oh, this is a dead hummingbird. It's not dead. It's actually going through what we call torpor. And it's a way of conserving its own energy. Now, the remarkable thing is, of course, that this little bird has to be ready for when the sun comes back up again. Well, it's got a little clock in it, such that about half an hour, 40 minutes before the sun rises, there's a little sort of wake-up call. It says, start getting ready, start getting ready, and the, the temperature begins to go up again, and the body begins to come round again, and then 30 minutes, 40 minutes later, it's once the sun's rays come above the horizon, it's ready to go, and it's ready to feed. So the very fact that hummingbirds have this torpor arrangement is, is just another design feature which has to be right in order for hummingbirds to survive, and they survive extremely well. So here's an illustration of hummingbirds doing their marvellous acts. If we could just play this, please, I'd be very grateful. I don't know whether you've got it going. Thank you. Thank you ever so much, Chris. So you can see hummingbirds actually showing this amazing ability to twist their wings uh, right backwards on themselves. And there is a film which I have, I'm not sure whether we've got any left, called um, uh, Refracted Glory. I did have some with me, but they're probably all gone now. But uh, hummingbirds are the acrobats of the natural world. They are marvellous to actually see in operation. And some people have taken very fast movie cameras, uh, video cameras, video shots, I should say, of this. And you can actually see the wings being bent right over. They are basically using vortices because they are similar in size, some of them, to insects, which are well known for using vortices, rather like we might use 
custard, they feel the air around them in a similar way because they're so small, they feel the vortices around them while hummingbirds are doing something similar. They're actually feeling the vortices from their own wing movements, the previous wing movement, and they're able to manipulate those vortices and they are able to, just by slightly altering the wing movement on one side, actually change the direction sideways, upwards or even backwards, as these pictures show. So their typical frequency would be about 50 cycles per second, which is a lot, but they can be as much as 150 cycles per second. Um, this is the, the film which uh, I have got a part in and others have got a part in. We might just play a bit of it here, which just to this give you some idea put the feather in this instrument and blew it up and I can still remember it. I almost fell out of my chair. And the thicknesses are so precise. They're very sophisticated neurologically. It's very difficult to have flight control of a hovering avid. Look what we had to do in order to accomplish that. A lot of moving pieces, very complex. Had you ever thought, what is the point of doing that? Refracted glory. It's been put together by a very young man in Tennessee who's actually done a marvellous job and uh, if you get the chance to get hold of it, do you can get it from his website there, refractedglory.com. Um, so let me just say a little bit more though about hummingbirds because this now illustrates a point which I want to bring to your attention. Whenever we talk about design, the danger is that we just simply talk about one wow factor as though that of itself will prove that the evolutionist is wrong. But evolutionists love wow factors as well and they will just simply say, isn't evolution wonderful? And they will say that of hummingbirds. But what we need to do is to actually line up a whole series of things which have to be right for hummingbirds to work or for any flight system to work. Flight is full of these principles of what we call irreducible complexity. What do I mean by that? Irreducible complexity means that nothing is going to work unless all these things are working in harmony together. Right? Now that's an important principle which the evolutionist can never appeal to because by definition he has no mind behind evolution. He can try and sneak it in and say, oh, evolution, you know, um, might think that we need that principle, so let's hold on to it for a few million years. No, he can't do that, because he's not allowed to. He's got no mind to appeal to, because in his view, na nature is all that there is. There is no mind behind it, so he cannot appeal <coughs> to a naturalistic argument. So, when we come to hummingbirds, this particularly is evident because hummingbirds have uh, this uh, very, very small 
but very powerful wings which are doing, making this figure of eight motion. I've already mentioned that you've got to be able to conserve energy, so you've got to have this ability to use what's called torpor at night. But how about this point, that in order to feed, it's got to have a long beak, which has got to be able to place down a plant, which generally is a long trumpet-like plant, where in which the nectar is at the bottom, at the base, and it's got to have a tongue which comes out in order to literally scoop the nectar out. And the, the tongue comes out six to ten times per second, while the wings are beating 50 to 60 times per second. This is pretty clever stuff, right? Now imagine if evolution were true, and that the, um, the hummingbirds, say, had the ability to hover, but didn't have the long beak. Supposing it didn't have the long beak and didn't have the long tongue, and it was, you know, pushing its head into this plant, but had the ability to hover, but couldn't get at the nectar. Well, that would be the end of that evolutionary experiment. And we'd see lots of dead half-hummingbirds in the fossil record, which you don't see. Imagine another scenario where maybe a few million years goes by and the so-called precursors to hummingbirds now have the ability to, uh, to have this long beak and a long tongue, but haven't yet got the ability to hover. So it comes in at 15 miles an hour and it goes straight through the other side because it hasn't got the ability to stop. So all these things have got to be right for a hummingbird in order to get its delicious sugary fluid that it needs every single 10 minutes of every single day. This is just so important. You see, there's the long tongue and the ability to be able to use that tongue to get the nectar down its throat is absolutely essential. Let me play you this rather uh, fun video which is of the red-breasted sapsucker um, which is rather envious of a hummingbird which is getting at the rather lovely juicy mix which isn't this time straight nectar but it's actually um, it's resin which is full of, um, full of sugars from a tree. So I'm just going to play this little bit because it's rather fun. The sugary sap is starting to overflow. It's now or never. So here's the hummingbird. Her tongue curls, grasping the sap, licking it in at nine sips a second. She can drink more than her body weight every day. Over the next three weeks, she'll be back regularly to pilfer this store. And uh, what she's doing in that case is she's actually uh, pinching food which has already been made available by the red-breasted sapsucker, which is rather like a woodpecker. So wherever she can find it, the hummingbird will actually try and get uh, some free food, obviously, and try and get some, um, some sugars. Let me just talk now about birds in general. So this isn't just about hummingbirds, much as we 
love to think about them. I'm now going to talk about feathers on birds in general. It isn't just any old feather in any old position. You need to have a feather in the right place. And a, a bird's feather is not just something which is just growing any old how on a bird wing. This is a typical bird wing which is showing you that there are primary, secondary and tertiary feathers. And then as you move forward there are what we call covert feathers and, and then we come to the lesser, median and greater coverts and so on. Then the tail feathers are what we call the retrices. Now, that is looking at the, what we call the plan form of the wing. My point is that every feather has its own location. It's not just a matter of saying, oh, well, it doesn't, it, you know, any feather can grow in any position. It doesn't really matter. It does matter. The flight feathers, as you probably, some of you know, are feathers which, if you're going to train a bird to fly, are the ones that you cut in order to stop the bird from flying away from you. And uh, eventually they will know who's boss and gradually those feathers will regrow and they will begin to be able to do tricks if you want them to do. And they can, you know, you can get them to, to sit on your shoulder and to actually come when you call them for food and all the, uh, all the rest of it. And that's what you do with budrigars or mini parrots um, as the Americans call them. I think you do call them budrigars because you have them out here. Uh, wild, but the, the, that, that's the way you train a bird. Then you have the secondary ones, which are further in, and the tertiary here. So, all those feathers have got to be in the right place. Now, if I was to look sideways on at an aerofoil, right? Now, let's not worry too much about the, the way the aerodynamics works of an aerofoil, although I have shown it there that there is a that there is actually a turning of the flow, which uh, is what I used to teach my students at the University of Leeds, that any movement turning the flow would give you lift. Then let's just deal with the actual aerofoil shape, which most of us are familiar with. All aircraft have an aerofoil shape on their wings. But of course, we're dealing with wings made of feathers. So you're, you've... What I'm saying on this little section is that not only the plan form of the wing must be right, but we're now looking end-on on the wing and we're saying what is determining the shape end-on is just as important. In fact, it's very much as important. And we've got to achieve a thickness at the front and then trailing off to a thinner aerofoil at the back. So, all these things have got to be right for a wing to work. I actually went to the Isle of Mull last year on holiday and I had the privilege of taking a picture of not the bald eagle but the white-tailed eagle which is even bigger, almost eight foot in wingspan on the Isle of Mull. You can actually see the winglets here at the edge. 
but um, you can, what I particularly want you to see is this aerofoil shape, this thickness of the wing at the front and very thin at the back. <laughs> and this, again, is a, um, a demonstration of this wonderful shape of the wing. See, the aerodynamic prowess of this bird is really extraordinary. So, we see that a bird's wing is not just any old shape. It's got to be positioned such that you build up the shape sideways on of the wing as well as the plan form of the wing. So when people make these statements, such as this Japanese biologist of ev evolutionary biologists some years ago, that the feather has the same fundamental structure as a reptilian scale, as this uh, quote says. Is he right? No, he is fundamentally wrong. He's actually leading himself astray and leading many others of his students astray in this textbook. He's totally false because he's trying to say that the scale of a reptile changed into the, um, the keratin of a feather. Now, it is true they're both made of keratin of some kind, but the fact that you've got two structures both made from the same material does not mean that one evolved into the other. <clears throat> it is not true at all to say that the structure of a reptile scale is the same as the structure of a feather. We know that it's totally different. You'll see that a feather has barbs and in between the barbs it has barbules. And the barbules are such that in one direction they, are, they have hooks on and in another direction they have ridges on, as we shall see. I will show you another picture of that in a few moments. But the other reason why this gentleman is so wrong is that he has not, or chosen to suppress, I don't know whether it's that he wasn't aware of, I hardly think that he could have been unaware of this, but he certainly chose not to mention it, um, that feathers grow from a special organism called a follicle. And a follicle is a brilliant little mechanism for actually growing a feather in miniature, including the main stem, the rachis, as well as the barbs, and then we shall see as well the barbules, which are sub-barbs, which are absolutely essential for the feather to work. So, this is a schematic of what is going on. The follicle is, has a feather cylinder inside, and the follicle itself is a cylinder, and there is a growth collar down here from which there is the, the mechanism for growing the feather. And of course, that itself 
is because there is a pre-programming of the keratin material to actually make a feather inside the follicle. So that's what you can actually see under the microscope as a feather is beginning to be made in a follicle. This is a little uh, sped-up diagram of a feather growing in the follicle. So the feather grows in the follicle and then is spread out on the wing. So it's a clever little system. The feather is growing inside this tube and then once it reaches the top of the tube, it's spread out over the wing. So every time a bird molts, the feathers are placed again from the position that they, where a feather has been lost, again into that position, down this follicle, down this sheath, as is shown on this particular bird, which we lost. Uh, we, we called it Humpty the Pigeon, but we didn't know how to feed it. Sadly, it died. But um, this fell out of a tree, which is why we called it Humpty. And... Uh, <laughs> but... The, uh, the, 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 the little tube in which the feather grew is visible there. You can see the light shining on the outer part of the tube. And the tube is very, very small and will flake away very, very quickly. And then the, the, the feather is just pushing out of the tube and is placed in the right place on the wing and if you can see on this picture here which I'll just show you again here the, if this weren't the case then the feathers would interrupt each other as they were regrowing on the surface of the wing but the fact that they are all in their respective little tubes means that they're not interrupting each other and once they're in the right place, then the tube begins to disintegrate and the feather is in the right place. Now let me talk about an individual feather. Now I've left actually uh, something I want to just show you, which is in my bag, so excuse me. Just pick it up because I want to show it to you. Just um, here. So... If I just refer you to one feather, um, I'm going to ask you a question, which is why does a feather hang together? And why, why is this all connected? Or another way of putting it is this. If I separate the barbs, two adjacent barbs of a feather, and I string these back together again or merge them back together again. What am I doing? Why is this able to be done? With a little bit of patience, I can actually cause this feather to, even though it's getting a bit old now, this one, but I can cause it to come back together again. What is it that's going on? Well, the answer is in this diagram here. Remember I said that adjacent barbs 
have between them uh, something which is only becomes evident when you look under the microscope. And there is another system, if you like, of barbs at the microscopic level. And instead of calling them barbs, because they're at the next level, we call them barbules. So, the reason why two barbs, adjacent barbs, are attached together, you perhaps have never realised this, is that barbules, which are vertical in this picture, have hooks on, but barbules which are horizontal in this picture have ridges on. So, the hooks of the vertical barbules are sliding over the horizontal barbules which have ridges. So, those of you who know about curtains and curtain rails will identify, I trust, immediately with this because these are like the ones with the hooks on that you'd put over the curtain rails and the horizontal ones are like the curtain rails. So, the actual picture that you see is something like this where you can see that this is the hooks right, and this is the ridges. So, way down here you've got a barb here so we've blown this picture right up so there's a barb there and there's a barb here okay these are the hooks all going in this direction and these ones are the ridges like the curtain rails that I mentioned earlier and that means that the ridges slide over the curtain rails which is what gives you a brilliant surface which hangs together and yet is exceedingly light and flexible. Where did that come from? What sort of mindless evolutionary set of mutations could produce the sophistication of a feather? We're just dealing with one feather. A one feather is sufficiently heavyweight in terms of engineering for knocking over the whole thesis of evolutionary development of flight. You don't need a bigger argument than that. A feather is a marvel of sophisticated, lightweight engineering. Now, this is irreducible complexity just with one feather because it would be one thing to say that just per chance a reptile scale had frayed and just happened to produce a mixture of ridges and hooks but you would never get it such that the, all the hooks were on one side of a barb and all the ridges were all going in the other direction. No way would that ever happen because you know as soon as you actually see in practice that every feather has this arrangement where on one side you've got hooks and on the other side you have ridges. That immediately is telling anybody who knows 
anything about engineering, this is the evidence of mind. And that is the problem, that the evolutionists cannot appeal to mind. So a feather is a huge embarrassment to the evolutionist. He may never use that term. He's not going to, is he? He's not going to admit defeat. But actually, that is the problem. Richard Dawkins had to admit this when he was interviewed many years ago now, 12 years ago, by Jonathan Miller on that wonderfully named and neutral-sounding programme, A Brief History of Disbelief, which the BBC ran. So, wonderfully neutral programme, hardly. Uh, But uh, he was interviewed in 2005 on a programme called A Brief History of Disbelief. The BBC is so good, isn't it, at producing neutral programmes. Let's see what he had to say. The biologist Richard Dawkins has written a great length about genetics and has committed much of his academic career to answering the questions... Something has to explain the novelties themselves. Well, the novelties themselves, of course, are genetic variations in the gene pool, which ultimately come from mutation and more proximally come from sexual recombination. There's nothing very inventive or ingenious about those novelties. I mean, they are random. Mm. And uh, they mostly are um, deleterious. Most, most mutations are bad. And so you really need to focus on natural selection as the, as the positive side. And it's only natural selection that produces uh, living things which have the, the illusion of design. The, the illusion of design does not come from the novelty. What was it about that early novelty, before it culminated in something as useful as a feather, where could natural selection get its purchase upon something which was uh, no more than a pimple? There cannot have been intermediate... there's, There's no room in natural selection for the sort of foresight argument that says, well, if we go persist for the next million years and it'll start becoming useful, that doesn't work. There's got to be a selection pressure all the way. So there isn't a process as we're going on in the cell saying, look... (laughs) There's got to be a series of advantages all the way the feather. If you can't think of one, then that's your problem, not uh, not natural selection's problem, natural selection, um, uh, well, I suppose that is a sort of matter of faith on my, on my mm. part, since the theory is so coherent and so, and so powerful. Basically, he's saying, you're the one who's got the problem, I haven't got the problem, you know, you know it, it, it's not natural selection that's got the problem, you're the one who's got, you, if you can't think of one, then, then you know, go, go away and think again. He basically admits that it's a matter of faith, blind faith actually in his view, on his part. And of course it is blind faith because it's all against the evidence. When you've got an unprejudiced mind looking at something as wonderful as a feather, you immediately don't come to a conclusion of illusions of design, you actually come to the conclusion of design. Because design is the most obvious and um, 
most uh, fitting and intellectually satisfying argument that there is for flight. But it doesn't end there. Birds don't just have feathers. Birds have special structures in order to maintain lightness. Most of the bird's bones are hollow. Some bones actually are uh, solid, but uh, most birds have hollow bones because they are generally built for flying from the land and they need to be light. So they have a special structure called the Warren structure, uh, Warren's truss arrangement, in order to provide strength, even though they're hollow. The birds which are an exception are birds like the tufted puffin, which <coughs> I'm taking a picture of one here in Alaska, because it's a diving bird. It actually um, needs to actually have heavy bones, so a few of these diving birds don't have hollow bones, and this is rather comical. Not only have they got comical faces, but they're actually quite comedians when it comes to taking off, because they're going along the water like this, and because they're quite heavy, they need a long runway to get going. And then eventually, after quite a few goes, they do take off at a very, very shallow angle. But uh, quite fun to watch, as we were in Alaska a few years ago. Um, bones are supporting muscles, and the bird's muscles are also quite remarkable and in fact unique in terms of an extra set of muscles which I'm going to draw attention to. You have a muscle which operates your humerus bone here, which you used perhaps for playing four strokes the other day when you were playing tennis, but you perhaps found it more difficult to do an Andy Murray backstroke um, as he um, you know, has developed a very powerful uh, he's probably developed his muscle in the back here pretty well to, in order to do that motion. But a bird actually doesn't need to develop this back muscle because it has an extra muscle. This is looking endways down the sternum, right? This is the sternum, uh, the breastbone. And that pectoralis major muscle is this muscle, which you may have used also to knock your... your little sister out when you went <coughs> like that because she got a toy <coughs> or whatever. <coughs> I'm sure you wouldn't do it now that you're an adult. But, uh, but underneath that pectoralis major muscle, a bird has another muscle which is called the supracoracoideus muscle. Sounds very complicated, but actually when you analyse it, it just simply means the muscle that goes round or above the coracoid. The coracoid is the equivalent, the bird doesn't have a shoulder, but it's a little bit like the shoulder. <clears throat> the, the ligament from this muscle is threaded round the back, and unlike that back muscle which we have got, which is rather weak, this muscle is rather strong, and it is threaded through such that when this muscle contracts, it lifts the humerus. So the bird is doing this motion, of course, generally for flapping motion. That motion is the pectoralis major muscle. This muscle 
which I'm now talking about, is the supracoracoideus muscle, which lifts the humerus bone. The best way to understand this is to see a diagram. Here it is. This is the pectoralis major muscle. Here's the extra muscle we're talking about, the supracoracoideus muscle, which, when this contracts, it pulls up the wing. And it's that that birds have. And they have a mixed... They have these two muscles operating in tandem. This is just utterly marvellous. A bird is built for flight. And, of course, the most important muscles are the muscles for flight. They represent a significant proportion of the weight of any bird. In fact, they usually represent something like half the weight of a bird because when you, when you go for your, um, you know, you want to eat a chicken or eat a turkey, you actually carve against these big breast muscles. And sometimes you'll see that against the first muscle, uh, which you get the tender white uh, meat for, for, from a turkey or chicken, and then underneath it you'll see this extra muscle, which is also there when it's, you can see it sort of cut away, slips away easily, and that is the supracoracoideus muscle. So these muscles are very heavy, and because they're heavy, you want to have them at the base of the bird. So it acts like a keel in order to keep that bird stable as it's flying along. This is really quite remarkable. Birds have then these special muscles. But did you know that birds have special breathing? We breathe using two lungs, and if you've got one not working properly, you can still breathe. If you haven't got the other one, then maybe you're going to have problems. But a bird breathes with an entirely different system. We breathe by breathing in through bronchial tubes, then comes, breaks up into what we call alveoli tubes, not ravioli that you ate the other day for, 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 for tea, and then the air comes to a dead stop. The air, the oxygen comes to a dead stop, passes into the blood, the blood passes back carbon dioxide and then you breathe out again. I'm doing it even as I'm speaking without realising it. That my diaphragm's going down, drawing the air in, then it pushes the air out again. And we, we're doing this even as some of you are listening to me, even perhaps going to sleep, you're still doing it and the air is actually being drawn in. At least I hope it is. If it isn't, you're dead. But uh, that might be a minor issue that we'll have to deal with later. But um, when it comes to birds, birds actually breathe in an entirely different way. Birds breathe in and pass the oxygen through a lung which is a continuous flow lung. It's not bringing the air to a stop at all. This is a totally different way of breathing. If there are some engineers, and I believe there is, I can't remember, the, what was your name again? John. John, you were speaking earlier and I could tell that you were an engineer, you've been along to the Grand Canyon and everything, John. So you, you probably and others here may understand this point, that, that if you're an engineer, good, well thought through principles in engineering have taken place. 
to understand how to pass gases from liquid into liquid. And they found that a counterflow system is the best way to do it. You get the best bang for your buck. And the bird is using exactly that same principle. It's passing oxygen directly into the bloodstream fluid, right? And it's doing it by a counterflow system. So as the air is moving and not stopping and going through, the blood is moving in the opposite direction. And as the blood moves in, it picks up the uh, oxygen from the lung. And of course, the blood gives out carbon dioxide, which is given to the air. And so the air is passing in oxygen and taking out carbon dioxide even as it's still moving. Now, I've oversimplified it here because it isn't just one counterflow mass exchanger. It's actually a whole series of counterflow exchangers in the bird lung. But it's a very clever system because it means that the, the bird has constantly got air on tap. It's constantly got oxygen on tap, which particularly is very useful for a diving bird, like a, a kingfish, or you call it the kookaburra here. You know, if it's going to dive down and get to go into the water and pick up um, a fish, then it's got to be able to hold its breath. Well, it's not holding it like we would hold it or like other mammals would hold it. It actually, it's always got air on tap, as we shall see in a moment, with various air sacs full of oxygen, which are constantly going through this lung, even though it may not be breathing in just at that point. So the air is going through this lung, and then on the um, other side, it's got, uh, ox got carbon dioxide, which it now needs to release. We release it, of course, by breathing out and in. We breathe in, oxygen and we breathe out carbon dioxide. Now we come to the bird lung in terms of its overall position. <coughs> it's there, there is the lung. But now I'm talking about its overall position with all the air, other air sacs, including the hollow bones that I mentioned for most, of, most birds have hollow bones. So it's storing air everywhere. A bird is full of air. It's a very, very light... <coughs> <coughs> structure. So now we need to ask, how does a bird breathe and get the air around its system? Well, it does breathe in and out, and this is how it does it. It breathes in, and it goes, the air goes through its trachea. That's no different to us. But it doesn't immediately go to the lung. It goes to a rear air sac. As you can see here, it comes to this... Whoops goes to a rear air sac here, and then it breathes out, but it doesn't breathe out the packet of air that we've just breathed in. It's breathing out an earlier packet of air, and as we breathe out, or the bird breathes out, this packet of air that we're following now goes through the lung with this arrangement that I've just mentioned. Then it breathes in again. Another packet of air comes to this rear air sac, but this packet of air that we're following goes to a front air sac. Now it breathes, in once, uh, breathes out once more, 
this packet of air that we've been following goes, uh, or the other packet of air goes through the lung, but this packet of air that we're following now is breathed out. So it's a two-stroke breathing system. It takes two breathing ins, in and outs to get one packet of air through the system. That is just staggering. And when I tell you that a bird does not have a diaphragm, you've got a lot of irreducible complexity issues going on here. The reason I mention this is because, of course, people try to argue that reptiles have changed into birds. And we've already mentioned that about feathers, and of course it doesn't work. A feather is nothing like a reptile scale. But also they try to argue that the breathing system of something like an alligator, they're saying, oh, it shows evidence that it's got a continuous flow lung like a bird. We'll park whether or not that is true. It may be that it's eventually found that an alligator does have something similar to a bird lung. I don't think it's anyway proven, but even if it were, I tell you this, alligators have their breathing system driven by a diaphragm. We know that alligators and crocodiles and other reptiles have a diaphragm similar to mammals. And a diaphragm, which is a, a muscle which actually lowers, draws the air in and then pushes up and pushes the air out. How does a bird then breathe? How does it get its breathing system going? Well, it actually has a movable breastbone and it has muscles attached to its breastbone which, or ligaments which push against that breastbone and push the breastbone out. So it's, it's rather like a diaphragm, but it's not a diaphragm because it's a muscle pushing against the breastbone and the breastbone pushes out and in. So the breastbone is acting like a diaphragm. The breastbone pushes out and draws air in and it pulls the breastbone back in again. Well, because the breastbone is travelling a fair distance, it means that the breastbone has got to have uh, the connections to the, um, to the ribs have got to be hinged because otherwise the rib cage would break. So you've got to have hingeable ribs in order to make a bird's breathing system work. This is really quite stunning, and people who try to argue that bird breathing has come about by random mutations uh, from a reptile have not really done their homework properly. It does not fit, friends. It's like Cinderella's slipper. It does not fit. It only fits Cinderella. <laughs> It will not fit this ugly sister called evolution. We need to actually get a grip on this, friends. The science fits beautifully with the design position. Don't be browbeaten by the evolutionary ideas. You may not know all the answers. You may not have immediate access to all the information that you would like. I'm afraid I've actually run out of the copies of this particular talk, so I'm sorry I can't give you that. But 
Um, I do have a debate on flights, which you're welcome to have. Um, I've got it here somewhere. But that debate is available on the bookstore. It's called Flight in Birds and Bats. And it was a debate against William Proveen, who's died now, uh, but who was willing to debate me and believed very strongly that evolution was the only way to explain flight. I don't believe it for a moment. Flight fits far better with the design thesis. You know, birds migrate huge distances. Why do birds fly south in winter? Somebody said it's because it's too far to walk. But uh, some of the amazing feats of, uh, of migration are with the Arctic Tern. Did you know that the Arctic Tern travels 12,000 miles from one pole to the other and then travels six, six months later 12,000 miles back again? And for those little critters, and they're not big, they're, they're really quite small, some of them will have travelled to the moon and back in an average lifetime. So, so many distances, to, so many um, pole travels do they make. Perhaps the one, though, that really is one of the most remarkable in terms of migration is the Pacific Golden Plover, which travels from um, Alaska or sometimes other parts of the North American, northwestern coast, to Hawaii. And it's a distance of 3,000 miles. But get this, in order to make that journey, you need to make sure that you know, where number one, where Hawaii is. Number two, you need to know how much food to eat, which is like fuel. Okay, if you eat too much, some of you well know that if you eat too much, you say, oh dear, I'm not going to make that walk today. And uh, if you're flying, it can become pretty critical. You end up in the drink. If you don't eat enough, you still feel too faint. So you've got to have enough to eat. But get this. This little creature, the Pacific Golden Plover, makes the journey as adults after the, the young ones have hatched, right, or... Uh, and uh, getting ready to go. But the adults go first. And they leave the young ones hatching. And the young ones, who've never made the journey before, now have to make the journey to Hawaii. They haven't got mum and dad to help them. But they make the journey. And they make the journey with those caveats, which I've just mentioned, They've got to know where Hawaii is. So either they've got a map somehow in their brains, but they've got to know where on that map in their brains they're going. So they've also got to know where north and south are. Or you've got to sort of, you know, it's one thing to have a map. You've got to know where you are on that map, even if you've got the map, right? You've got to know how do I, which direction do I go on this map, right? And the other thing is, you need to know how to make that journey such that you are eat enough but not eat too much. And these birds get it right. They make the journey, having never been there before, to Hawaii. And if you've ever flown to Hawaii, those islands are tiny little dots in the middle of the Pacific. They get it right, guys. This is really an extraordinary feat. 
of migratory powers. The one that perhaps takes the biscuit is the bar-tailed godwit, which travels 7,700 miles non-stop across the Pacific in six days. Again, it travels from Alaska, but it goes to our friend's country, New Zealand. And the Telegraph um, once, uh, the, the UK uh, Daily Telegraph, uh, tracked this bird and they could see that it was making this journey non-stop, 7,700 miles across the Pacific for six days. What a feat of engineering. These birds are extraordinary in their capabilities. Let me suggest to you, friends, that the scriptures knew all this years ago when God said to Job, does the hawk fly by your wisdom and stretch her wings towards the south? When he also said in the similar passage, have you an arm like God or can you thunder with a voice like him? Deck yourself now with majesty and excellency and array yourself with glory and beauty. Everything is indicating that we are dealing with the greatness of Almighty God. Job was told this when God declared his greatness by referring Job to the greatness of the creatures that he had made. We need to understand that these creatures were not made after the land creatures. I mentioned this at the beginning. These creatures were made before the land creatures. It's as though God had a sense of humour. He knew people would be trying to say that flight came after land creatures. He says, oh no, 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 I'm not doing that. I'll make the flying creatures first. As if to show to man, you in your foolishness think that wings emerged from land-based creatures. No, they didn't. Wings were made to the glory of God before he made the land creatures. And I would like just to remind you as I close that it says in the scriptures in Isaiah 40, they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. Now I'm going to apply that spiritually because some of you will face real hurdles, particularly if you're a young person doing um, your science at university here, And you're going to face real problems. You're going to face battles. You're going to face people who say, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't believe that he's the saviour. And I don't believe he's the creator. How are you going to deal with such? You need to keep firm to the scriptures. And you need to wait upon the Lord. My testimony is that even though people did not like the fact that I believed in creation, They didn't actually, as an engineer, get in the way. I would just carry on doing my engineering. And indeed, I did some work on the Bombardier Beetle, which eventually got a great prize uh, in the Times Higher Educational uh, Community. There was a prize for the best uh, innovative research that year. And and so that's what this work is about. But God honours those who honour him. And... I don't think you need worry that somehow you're going to miss out. God will bless you as you seek him.
They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. May I encourage you, as pastors teaching the young people, to always teach these principles and try and point young people to the science. Because if you haven't managed to pick up everything that you need today, go to creationresearch.net. I think that's what it's called, isn't it? Creationresearch, all written together, .net or go to answersingenesis.org, which is another organisation, and you'll find that there is lots of material there. Even if you don't want to be able to buy DVDs, you can download snippets from there. You could download articles. You can get onto John Mackay's sign-up sheets, and you can receive all the information you need. So even if you as a pastor don't have all the information at your fingertips, for those who ask you, what do I do about this pastor? You know, some difficult biochemical challenge of some kind. Point them to these websites where all the information is there. And they'll, these days they'll just go straight to their phone and they can find it. Friends, there is no excuse today to say that there is, you can't find answers. You can find answers. And we need to pray for our young people to stand firm for truth against the juggernaut of evolution. And it's an ugly juggernaut, as I was saying about Cinderella. It really is a horrible, ugly sister. Keep firm to the scriptures. Keep firm to the design argument. Keep firm to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all part of being faithful to the scriptures. I'm prepared to take a question or two. And uh, the books, of course, are out there. Is there a question or two that people would like to ask? Feel free. Yeah, John. Just in terms of the fish, the uh, waterfall, the Lord made everything very good, and uh, we understand they're not eating each other. What are the fish eat? The fish before the fall? Yes. Um, we just have to say we don't know, uh, bottom line, but certainly there are baleen whales today which eat just simply vegetation right um, or could, be eat, could have been eating vegetation just by scooping up very very small bits of material um, and it's not impossible that fish were also eating vegetation beforehand they needn't necessarily have all been carnivorous so I think we have to say that it doesn't tell us but we have every reason to believe that there was, um, they were not feeding off one another as obviously they do today. Because obviously many fish or uh, whales feed on tiny krill today, which is just another fish. So I would say that the ecological balance was very different in the past. The food chain, in other words, was very different in the past, even in the ocean than it is today. Any other questions? Yes. I didn't mention those. Thank you for mentioning it, sir. Um, I wouldn't call them, uh, wouldn't call them uh, prehistoric. They, they are just simply extinct birds, right? There are ex- examples of extinct birds. 
and they are just birds because they're fully feathered. Birds like Archaeopteryx existed in the past, which had bony tails and also had teeth, but that just simply means that there were... But they also had fully formed feathers. You can tell from looking at the fossils of them that they actually had uh, fully formed curved feathers. So there is absolutely no doubt that Archaeopteryx was a bird. But um, the fact that it had a bony tail and the fact that it had teeth just simply means that there were greater varieties of birds in the past, some of which had teeth and some of them also had bony tails as well. So I, I find no issue here that you have to refer to them as somehow half-formed birds. No, they were fully formed birds, but we don't have them all today. We've lost different species of birds today, just like we've lost some species of reptiles. We've lost dinosaurs today. We don't have them today, but we had them in the past. So I, I find no need to rename these as somehow some half-formed uh, creature. Uh, they are, in fact, anything with feathers, in my view, is a bird because it can't be a reptile because it's actually getting in the way of heating up. A, a feather, if you have lots of feathers on you, it actually stops a reptile heating itself up. So feathers would get in the way of a reptile. Thank you so much, though. I hope that... Come back at me if you'd like. Any other questions? Statements? Disagreements? Yes. Can you speak up? I'm not picking up all your words. I know that you talked about a three-hour documentary and something about death, but I didn't pick it all up. Yep. Many years ago, I yeah. heard a Christian scientist talk about um, the decay of the air today um, due the to the decay fall, of the air, the quality of the air, yep. um, due to the fall, and saying that prior to the fall, the air quality was far better, causing human beings to live longer, and now after the fall, the decay has caused early death and so forth. Is there any current information that... Yeah, I, I, I would say that rather than air quality, I would talk about the, the air pressure and the constituency of air. Air today is 21% oxygen and 79% nitrogen. If it had been something like 22 or even 23, but not more than that, it would have greatly enhanced the ability of insects to get oxygen. So that would explain the fact that there is evidence before the flood, because we believe that most of the fossils are from the flood. And when you actually examine the fossils, there is evidence of large 
insects, large examples of dragonflies, right? And even large spiders as well. You know, not particularly, people aren't usually impressed by that. But, but you know, large, these large creatures. So how did they get large? Well, some amber, which has got trapped, uh, it's resin which has uh, got hardened, some of that amber has got little bits of air bubbles in it and people have looked at the air bubbles and found to their astonishment that there is more oxygen in them than we have today. So I would suggest that there is some evidence supporting the idea that before the flood there was a greater increase in oxygen there was a greater amount of oxygen in the air. Not a huge amount more. You cannot, if you're going to have, any, if you went above the figures I've just mentioned, you would be in danger of, at a lightning strike, you know, uh, just ca causing the burning down of all the forests in the whole world. Um, so you, you cannot afford to go too far. You've got to have inert gas, nitrogen, a good, good amount of it. But that would explain why there was more um, growth in insects which rely on diffusion of air to get their... Uh, they don't breathe in the same way as we do. They diffuse oxygen through spiracles. It, it is just possible that there is another factor, but this one's more difficult to prove. It's known that people um, can resist or can get better more quickly if you put them in hyperbaric chambers after um, an illness of some kind. Hyperbaric means to have an increase in pressure. Now, whether this was also the case, I'm not sure. But if, if there was a slight increase in pressure as well as an increase in oxygen, then that would possibly determine um, uh, you know, the resistance to disease, perhaps we would have lived a little bit longer. Um, although another reason could be that there was less cosmic radiation getting through in the past. Today, aging is linked with cosmic radiation getting through. So, I think that there is some tantalizing evidence which suggests that the, the time before the flood was allowing people to live longer and allowing creatures to get bigger as well, particularly with the oxygen. So, some tantalising evidence there. I think we'll leave it there, but thank you ever so much for your welcome today. Thank you, Pastor Gary. Thank you. Also, Pastor Werner, so much for your welcome. And uh, thank you, Colm. Also, he was always oh, there. Uh, thank you, I appreciate that. And John, thank you for all your, um, you know, your looking after us today and welcoming Chris, of course, who has done an awful lot of the work to run this meeting. And I'm sure on behalf of Creation Research, I want to say uh, thank you uh, from John Mackay as well. Don't forget the books which are still there if you're still interested. Thank you. Yes.